All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1, please. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we got a lot of scripture to look at today. I'd like to preach to you a sermon called The Beginning of the End. The Beginning of the End. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 17. And before we even get to the beginning of the beginning of the end, let's pray. Amen. Father, please help us this morning. Please open up our hearts. Lord, you said to break up the fallow ground. Lord, I reckon we should have already been doing that all throughout this week, getting ready to hear this this morning. But Lord, here we are. We're ready to receive the word. Please, God, let it fall on good ground. Please help me to preach, Lord. I pray you'd let us all push aside the distractions of the world, the flesh. Let us concentrate on you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You guys have this saying here in South Africa about somebody being over the hill? You say that? It's when you hit the age of 50, right? 60? Can I get a 60? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I get a 70? Amen. Can I get a witness? That's, now, now in, in, sorry, I had to throw that in. That's just fun. Um, in America, it's usually 40. When you hit 40, you're over the hill. You, you know the people that just went, what are over 40? <laughs> right. What's the age when you hit the top of the hill here? When, when does somebody say, now you're over the hill? 85? Baltimore, what's the color of the sky in your world? <laughs> Seriously, though, what, what's the age? Really? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're going to start a riot. Okay, I'm going to work with the number I know. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I'll let you guys settle this at the uh, senior citizens' tea. <laughs> but um, I, I grew up knowing that when you hit 40, you're over the hill. That, that's on the greeting cards and all, you know, the birthday cards. For, a 40-year-old birthday card is, is black and you got a mountain on it. And they make all sorts of jokes about being over the hill. Um, the idea is... You know, once you hit 40, you've had the best part of life. Everything's been, you know, looking up. And then when you hit that, that's as good as it's going to get. And from there on out, it's just going to get worse and worse. And the pain sets in and life gets tougher and then you die. Sorry. <laughs> but, but when it comes to life, I don't know how long you're going to live, right? It all depends. Some, some people, by the time they hit 20, that's as good as it gets because... Life for them is going to be a little shorter, right? So it, it all depends on that individual's life. So it's hard to say when you technically became over the hill. But you understand what I mean by that. There's a certain point in your life where that's as good as it gets, and from there it's just all downhill and things are going to get a little bit worse. That should not be the case with you spiritually. You should never be over the hill spiritually. There should never be a time where you say, you know what, way back then, that was as good as it gets. That was as good as it will ever be, and from there on out, my Christian life has been declining, and I've been getting slowly farther and farther away from God. Take 
just a moment now and look back in your life. Is there a time when you were closer to the Lord than you are today? It's one thing, right, to constantly be pressing, pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus to say, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm climbing every day. I'm, I'm working my way towards the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more and more like him. You understand the distance between us and God is not geographical. You cannot escape the presence of God geographically. You understand that? David said in Psalm 139, though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. The distance between you and God is not one of geography, it's one of likeness. You're not very much like him. That's the distance, the distance between your nature and his. And the more you become like him, the closer you get. And in the Christian life, we're always making that effort, climbing that mountain, becoming more like him. Never do we want to hit the point where we've done the best we can in our minds and we're satisfied with that and we say, well, that's how it goes. That was as good as it gets and then I'm just going to sail. Because once you start going down the hill, right, there's not much effort to that takes a lot of effort to get up the hill. But once you're going down the hill, you can pretty much just let uh, gravity do its work. All you got to do is sit down and gravity will do the rest. And you just start rolling down the hill. I don't know exactly when the beginning of the end of your spiritual life will start or has already started. But I'd like to show you from the life of King Saul where his end actually began now what we're reading in second samuel 1 is saul and jonathan's funeral for those of you that don't know jonathan was the son of saul and there's actually two sermons that i could preach from this we could talk about jonathan there's lots of lessons to be learned from his life we're going to focus in on king saul david is giving the eulogy at the funeral second samuel 1 verse 17 David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, as a side note, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So they learned something from the mistakes made in the previous war. Saul and Jonathan had been killed by Philistines and Saul had been beheaded and his body hung on the wall in one of the Philistine temples as a trophy. Sad ending. Verse 19, The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Those are places of the Philistines. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. David continues, Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, let there be uh, rain, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. That anointing had happened years ago. Verse 22, from the blood of the, uh, I'm sorry, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. Don't you know that was difficult for David to say? 
Saul had been chasing him for almost 20 years, about 15, 20 years. Now notice, I believe David did this on purpose. He didn't say Saul was lovely and pleasant in his life. He said Saul and Jonathan. He had to put them together. Because when they were working in tandem, that was okay. But Saul by himself was a piece of work. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. That's true. They died in the same battle. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Verse 27, he ends the eulogy by saying, How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Do you hear how he constantly cries out in this eulogy? How are the mighty fallen? Now, he is exclaiming this. You can see the exclamation mark. I would like to pose that as a question. How do the mighty fall? What brought about this horrible ending of Saul's life? Hanging there headless on a Philistine wall, a trophy of the devil. How did that end up? How did he end up there? Let's take a look at where his end began. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 9, you can come to chapter 15, but I'm going to walk you through the beginning, give you a bird's eye view of it. In 1 Samuel 9, Saul is sent out by his dad to find a couple donkeys that had gotten lost. And in the process of looking for them, he can't find the donkeys, but he finds the prophet Samuel. Samuel says, stand thee still a while that I might show thee the word of God. And he says, Saul, God is going to give you an opportunity to serve him as king of this nation. And here's what God's going to do. You're going to be walking down the path and you're going to meet with these people and they're going to minister to you. And then you're going to meet with some prophets. And God, when, when you meet with those prophets and they begin to prophesy, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, you're going to become a new man. Now Saul wasn't saved the same way that we are, Right? But he became a completely different person. This meeting with the prophets, this time he spent around the good crowd, changed him. Sure enough, in chapter 10, that's exactly what happened. The Spirit of God came down, so much so that even Saul began to prophesy. He, he came out preaching. He starts talking about how good God is and what God's going to do in the kingdom and those types of things is what he would have been prophesying about. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, Saul made mistakes, but, but he fought the battles of the Lord. He and Jonathan worked in unison, and they were getting the job done for God. They were holding back the enemies of the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel comes to Saul, and he says in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. And what comes in the next two, seven, eight, nine verses? God gives Saul the Amalek test. He says, I want you to go out, Saul. You're going to head the battle. And I want you to wipe out the Amalekite nation. Now, they had it coming. 
This wasn't some arbitrary hatred on God's part. The Amalekites had been abusing God's people for hundreds of years. They were a wicked bunch, and God knew they needed this punishment. He says, wipe out that town, kill everything that breathes, even the animals. Now, those of you that believe the Bible, that shouldn't be too much of a struggle because God knows how to prevent future wickedness from happening. This is, this is why we believe in Noah's flood, right? Because God brought a righteous judgment in the world. No problems there. But he says, Saul, you're the instrument for this. As the leader of the nation, head the battle, wipe out the Amalekites. And starting down in verse number 10... We'll pick it up there. Saul goes out and he does about 98% of what God told him to do. They do wipe out most of the Amalekites, but not all. They spare the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and so forth. They spare the king, Agag. And in verse number 10, I believe this is the beginning of Saul's end. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. I find that interesting. He did 98% of what God told him to do and God said he's turned back. He wasn't obedient. And the Bible says at the end of verse 11, and it grieved Samuel and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now I don't know if you're going to get much out of the end of verse 11, but I do. Because I know what it feels like as a pastor to be watching over people that have hit that pinnacle in their Christian life and it's all downhill from there. When you see somebody begin to slip and you know they are heading down a slippery slope and this is the beginning of their end and if they don't repent, it's going to end up very bad. And as the pastor, sometimes you can see that happening. And as you pray for the, for the people, God starts to speak to your heart and says, boy, you really need to help that person, help so-and-so, because the path they're on doesn't lead out at a good place. I know how that feels, to be grieved all night. Verse 12, and when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He's all excited. Well, Samuel knows better than that. God's already told him that Saul did not perform the commandment of the Lord. The beginning of the end is you don't recognize how far off the mark you are. You think you've got it done, and you didn't. Notice what happens next in verse 14. Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So as Saul is saying, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I am a big Christian. As you, I'm a big Christian. Right about that time, there's a sheep walking by. It says, <laughs> which is just, it's the sound of your conscience bleeding against you. Because you know deep down, you're not doing everything God told you to do. But on the outside, you'll say that you did. See, Saul was supposed to kill all those sheep. 
Samuel says, now if you did what God told you to do, why do I hear a sheep sounding off? Why are the oxen lowing? Something's not right here. Verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Who's they? They are the reason that you can't live right. They are the everlasting verskunning. <laughs> the excuse that you'll always use. It's not me. I did right. I'm right with God. I'm a big Christian. I, I'm right where I need to be. But those people, oh, shame on them. It's always they. Saul's going to blame the people. He believes, and here's my first point, he believes he is above reproach. No one else is but he is. No one else has it figured out, but he does. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. He's trying to justify it and make it sound okay. Listen, we did utterly destroy everything else, but just the best, you know. We want to give God an offering. We thought give God a present. Trying to make it sound spiritual and nice. But Saul's blaming them. Not me, them. Verse 18, if you can just come down to that. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? There's some good preaching. Notice how Saul blamed everyone else. And Samuel points right at Saul and says, Wherefore then didst thou, that's yea or yo, why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? He says in verse 20, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Isn't it strange you come to church and the preacher preaches and you think, man, I hope so-and-so's here. They need to hear that. <laughs> man, that is just for them. Blessed is the day when you come to church and say, man, that was just for me. That's what I needed to hear. Generally, a person in that situation is still climbing the hill. But when you get to the point where you come Sunday after Sunday and it's not you, it's them. And every time you fail to serve God, it's not your fault, someone else did it. Well, I would have come to church, but somebody else came from out of town and I couldn't come. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to go out and be a part of this, but, you know, I had these other things to take. It's always someone else. It's never you. As soon as you start to make excuses like that, blame everyone else, that's the beginning of your end. I'm not saying that we expect you to be blameless and faultless. See, we understand that from time to time you're going to make mistakes, but when you do, a man who is still climbing the mountain will accept the fault. He will say, yes, I made a mistake, and I'm going to forget that which is behind. I'm going to, I'm going to learn from that mistake. I'm not going to keep dwelling on it. I'm going to keep pressing toward the mark, and he's not going to use the mistakes of his past or the mistakes of others as an excuse to stop trying. You know what I've found? People come to church, they get involved, and once they get involved, and you come around about, oh, it takes about three or four months, consistently, faithfully being involved. Every week, you're here for everything. 
prayer meetings, Bible school, witnessing, you're involved. You know what you find out? Not everybody's involved. You start to realize, man, there's a, just a small portion of people that get involved. A lot of people just kind of sit on the edge, a little bit in, a little bit out, and the people that are involved get frustrated. Say, this isn't fair. Why is it that 10% of the church is doing 90% of the work? This isn't right. Be very careful, saint. Because it's right then when that bitterness creeps into your heart and you start to look at what everybody else is not doing and then you make a decision to stop doing what you're doing because of their fault. That's the beginning of your end. People are going to make mistakes. You cannot be responsible for the decisions they make, but you are responsible for the way that you react to the decisions they make. Say, he was wrong. Does that mean you can get angry at him? Does that mean you should overreact? Just because he did make a legitimate mistake doesn't mean you get to act however you want. He's going to be held responsible for his failure but you're responsible for how you react to that. Did the people make a mistake in our story? Yes. Did they spare the best of the sheep and oxen? Yes. Were they to blame? Yes. But Saul's the king. He could have done something about that, and he didn't. He, did, he made no effort to make it right. Rather, he used it as a salve for his guilty conscience. Well, I did my part. They failed. As soon as you start blaming others and thinking you're above reproach and become a finger pointer, the beginning of your end. In verse number 20, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Saul says, I did 99% of what I should. Verse 21, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. He's trying to justify it, make excuses. I'll give you the New Testament version of this. Revelation 3, verse 17, Jesus says to the church of the Laodiceans, because thou, oh, by the way, they were the lukewarm church. Just want to put that in the back of your mind. The lukewarm church says to Jesus, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They think they're at the tippy top of the pinnacle of their spiritual life. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Jesus said, but thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Is you don't realize just how bad off you are. You think you have need of nothing. You think that you've reached the pinnacle and can do no wrong and that's the beginning of your end and Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. He says, you guys are sliding down the mountain you need to take some effort to get back up the mountain where you need to be. God help you if you walk out thinking, well, it's a good sermon, but not for me. Be looking for something, something in it for you. You know what I've heard over and over again? I hope, I'm not trying to be offensive by this. 
these things need to be said. I have had white people in this town say, I'm not going to go to Bible Baptist because there's black people in that church. That is worse than pathetic, it's stupid. How, how could you possibly think that's the right thing to say? That's, that's just ignorant. That's just ignorant. I won't go to church because of someone else in it. Do you see how you, the beginning of the end has already started? I don't want to learn the Bible. I don't want to get closer to God because someone else is sitting on the other side of the building. <laughs> Finger pointing. As, as if you as an individual don't bring your own set of sins into the church. And by the way, it happens the other way too. I've had black people say, you know what? Uh, what, what, what do they call it? A burkerk? You know, a lot of you are not farmers. <laughs> but that's what they say. I, I've heard the excuse both ways. I'm not picking on any one color. I, I'm just saying that's ridiculous. People say, well, I'm not going to go to church as hypocrites down there. All right, Mr. Hypocrite. A as if you've never lived up to every one of your standards. You see, I, I, have you ever heard this term, nose deaf? Some people go nose deaf. You know, when you stink long enough, you no longer can smell your own stink. Amen. Oh, don't worry. Everybody sitting around knows. <laughs> you say, I am in need of no bath. And we say, oh, thou knowest not. <laughs> Brother, you need a big bar of soap. You don't know how bad it's gotten. You've gone nose deaf. You've gone nose deaf. And I dare say there's plenty of people in the body of Christ that are blaming their lack of service, their disobedience, because someone else failed. That's the beginning of the end. I'll show you another thing. Verse number 22, active rebellion. He thought he was above reproach, and then there's active rebellion. Verse 22, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? See, Saul's trying to justify disobedience with, well, at least I'm trying to give an offering. Samuel said, God would much rather you just obey. Just do what you're told. Rather than trying to make up some fancy thing to serve God, do what you're told. Verse 22 in the, in the middle there, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken, to listen, to hearken than the fat of rams. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Do you know how much God dislikes witchcraft? Do you know in the Old Testament there were certain laws that if they were broken, the penalty was death. Adulterers, homosexuality was in that list. Witchcraft is in that list. Heinous crime. God hated that. You know what witchcraft is at the end of the day? It's you trying to get your way. You're doing it your way. You'll do anything. You'll spit in the face of God as long as you get what you want. At the end of the day, that's at the root of witchcraft. I'll say anything, pay any money. I just want to get what I want. At the root of witchcraft is self-will. That's what rebellion is all about. I know God told me to do it this way, but I want to do it my way. 
He says in verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord he hath also rejected thee from being king stubbornness rebellion this this I have named active rebellion because he's doing something it's not like he's sitting down pouting going I don't want to do what God told me he's not doing that he's He's going about it and and making something up and calling it the will of God. Now listen, it's one thing. Please, Please hear this part. I don't want you to be under a false conviction. It's one thing if you know the will of God, try to do it and fail, but you acknowledge that, hey, I I, I missed the mark. I'm going to pick myself up, confess it, and just keep going. See, that's one thing, and, and that's climbing the mountain. No problems there. That's, that's the Christian life. It's another thing to miss the mark, right? To shoot at the target, miss it, run down to the end of the range, move the target over and stick your arrow in it and go, whew, I hit the mark. <laughs> that's called cheating. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> that's rebellion. Say, here's what Jesus once in a disciple but that's too difficult he's asking too much of me I am going to change what a disciple should be I will make up my own standards and when I live up to my own standards I will call myself a big Christian that's what Saul's doing active rebellion he's still right he's gathering things to offer to the Lord he walks around talking about I've obeyed the Lord But when you compare his life with, verse 23 at the end, when you compare his life with the word of the Lord, it doesn't match. It's active rebellion. It's rebellion in Jesus' name. It's creating your own version of Christianity and discipleship, and that's not going to get you anywhere with God. I, I think a good example of this you can find it in children, especially teenagers. Sorry, teenagers. Sorry, sorry. But it's true, right? I was a teenager once. I know how this goes. My dad gave me a list of things that I needed to do, standards for our home. Dads, I hope you give your family some standards. I hope you set the bar high enough. But my dad would tell me, cut the grass or mow the lawn. How we set it down in my house. Mow the lawn. And then he would tell me to clean my room. Now, he had a good reason to say that because, wow, did my, my room was a mess. I would take clothes off, and I don't know why it was so difficult for me to put my dirty clothes in a hamper. I would pile them up. I had a, like a, a king-size bed. I would pile my dirty clothes on the other side of the bed. It's just me and the big old bed. I'd have a pile of clothes, I mean a mountain of them. You know... A teenage boy's dirty clothes stink (laughs) really bad. (laughs) And my dad would come into that room and he'd say, son, clean this room. It's an embarrassment. And I would, I'd say, dad, get out of my room. Shut the door. Because I was a rebellious brat. Shut the door. Get out. And I think, what does it matter? I'm the only one that sees my room. Why do I need to live up to his standards? As long as when I walk out of the room, I look good. My clothes are clean and I sprayed on enough cologne and everything's fine. I walk out. As long as what people see looks right, who cares what my room looks like? Who cares how high the grass gets? 
when, when my dad has company over, I'll cut the grass. Until then, who cares? I have my own set of standards. You know what happened for my entire teenage life? My dad and I didn't get along because I constantly was trying to convince my dad to do it my way. Dad, just be happy with what I'm doing. Be happy with how much I'm obeying. Okay, I'm not doing everything you say, but I'm doing something. Are you guys hearing the point in this? Sometimes we go to God and we say, God, listen, just be happy that I'm at least doing something. I know I'm not doing everything, but bless God, it's enough. It's enough for me. It should be enough for you. I think we all tend to do this as soon as something gets a little inconvenient. As soon as it's not easy, we just mark that off. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. Do you, do you hear the childishness in that? Do you see why I used a child or a teenager for rebellion? How many of you moms and dads have struggles getting your young children to eat vegetables? Amen. Be honest. Oh, well, said I had two hands up. Wow. She's either praising God or very honest, right? <laughs> when I was young, my dad, now, I had lots of problems and lots of rebellion, but when I was young, my dad taught me one thing. You eat those vegetables. You don't get up from the table until you've eaten everything on the plate. Man, I could sit there. I, you know, I'd go on a hunger strike. I'd sit there two hours. I'm not eating. <laughs> okay, but before you get up, you're going to eat that food. Mom and dad, if I can slip this in just real quick, make sure that when you set that standard, you hold your kids to that standard. Don't let them get their way just because they don't like the broccoli. Here's the proper response to that. I love you, and I don't care if you like broccoli, you're going to eat it. <laughs> Amen. I love you, and I know what's best for you, and I say eat the broccoli. Done. There's no discussion. There's no discussion. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, why is there a discussion to this? Why are we trying to convince God that I've done enough? Stop bugging me about all the other stuff that you want me to do. Active rebellion, that is part of the beginning of the end. When you say, God, I've hit my ceiling, I'm not going to press any higher. This is as much as you'll ever get out of me. Okay, you're over the hill because it's all downhill from there all downhill I, I used to do this all the time as I witnessed to people on the street I, I haven't done this much recently let me try it with you guys now this works with uh, the matter of salvation right if someone says I think I'm good enough to save myself then you have to wonder why Jesus came to die for you right so it works for that and then if you're also struggling to be a, a good disciple of Christ taking up your cross, denying yourself, doing what you need to do even if you don't feel like doing it, even when it's not convenient. Saying, God, I know that's your way and I don't feel like doing it, but I'm gonna do it anyway because it's right, even though I don't feel like it. Here's what you do. Look up to heaven and stare God right in the eye and say, God, I think you're wrong and I'm right. Go ahead, try it. 
Do you know, I've been, I, like I said, I've done that for years when I'm out on the street and somebody wants to argue this and they say, no, 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 I think I'm okay. I don't, need to, I don't need a savior. I'm fine. You know, my church will save me or my good works will save me. That's okay. You see right here in the Bible where it says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you see there what, what God said about it. They say, oh, I think there's lots of paths to God. You know, we're all serving the same God in different ways. Just pick your way. No, no, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, so do me a favor. You, you saw here what God said. Just do me a favor. Look up to heaven right now and tell God he was wrong. Would you do that for me? You'd be surprised. how People are so bold. No, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I know I'm right. They justify everything. And as soon as they have to turn their face to God and say, God, you're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> then they go, oh, no, I'd never do that. You do it every day. You just don't turn your head upward. You look around and justify it to all the people. Which leads me to the last point. Verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. Oh, good job, Saul. Way to admit it. Way to admit it. Let's see how genuine that was. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people. And obeyed their voice. Wow, well, I mean, you, you can't fault Saul for that admission, right? At least he confessed it. But what does he do about it? Verse 30, uh, 25, now therefore, Saul's continuing, now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Uh, time out. Wait just a second. That, that sounds good on the surface, right? Okay, Samuel, I messed up. Preacher, I messed up. I was wrong. I was worried about what the people would say, and I shouldn't have done that. My bad. Uh, do me a favor, Samuel. Turn again with me, and let's go to church together. Let's, let's walk into the temple together and worship God together. Is, is, that, is that the right response? Well, now, most people would say, well, Saul's doing a good thing. He wants to go worship the Lord. Hey, let's go worship not Samuel. Verse 26, Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Now this tells me something. Saul's response was incorrect. I, let, me, let me say that a little better. It was incomplete. I have sinned. I feared the people. I disobeyed. One more thing, Saul. Go do what you should have done. Go get Agag, go tell the people to bring the sheep, bring the oxen, get the job done. As we say down south in America, get her done. <laughs> Finish the job. Saul didn't want to do that. He is now saying, okay, I know I'm wrong, but I'm not willing to make the changes to make it right. But I still want to go to church and I still want to look right. Point three. Point one, he thought he was above reproach. Point two, he was participating in an active rebellion. Point three, he wanted to have an, an appearance of reverence. He's going to go to church and put on a show. He wasn't coming to church because he was wanting to hear from God. He didn't come to church to have the Lord Jesus Christ change his heart. Came to church because it's Sunday and that's what you do. 
Samuel called him on it, said, I'm not going to do that. I've thought about this often. What if I were to do that as the pastor? Wow, could you imagine how uncomfortable that would be as you walk in the door, I shake your hand and I say, you know what? I know how you've been living. Go home. Once you actually bear forth any fruit that shows you're a real disciple, you're more than welcome to come back. But until then, we don't want you here playing games. We're, we're trying to take this serious. Go home. I see some of you bracing yourself. If you, if you see me at the door tonight, you'll, <laughs> you'll go in the other entrance, right? <laughs> I wonder if we're supposed to take it that seriously. I, I kind of think we should. Verse 27, and as Samuel turned about to go away, he, Saul, laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. So Saul is like diving out at him, grabs a hold of the bottom of his robe, that skirt, and, and it rips. And Samuel, being the preacher that he is, he sees this as a sermon illustration. Verse 27, and Samuel turned about to go away. I'm sorry, laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. Verse 28, and Samuel said unto him, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And that's, if you think about that, can I say that to you? If I were to point to you and say, hey, uh, he's better than you. <laughs> Boy, that'll really stick in the heart, won't it? You wonder why Saul ended up jealous of David so badly. He says in verse 29, also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent for he is not a man that he should repent. That is, God's already said, you're out, you're out. Verse 30, then he said, here's Saul again, I have sinned, and look at the next word, yet. Yet honor me now. I have sinned. Yes, I've sinned. And yes, I have no intentions of doing everything the Bible tells me to do. But listen, just ignore that and show me some respect. Honor me now. Where? Honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. He didn't say honor me now before God. He said, listen, Samuel, let me come to church with you because if everybody sees me walking into the temple with you, at this point, the tabernacle, walking into the tabernacle with you, they'll think I'm spiritual, they'll think I'm right, and then everybody will think I'm a spiritual giant. You know what? It's, it says here at the end of the verse, turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. You don't really want to worship God. You want to be worshiped by the people the Bible, Jesus said, the Father seeks true worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not this kind of nonsense. Not these kind of people that just put on a show. Now, verse 31, it says, so Samuel turned again after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Samuel gave in. I'm not gonna be too quick to judge Samuel. There might've been more to the situation I don't know about. I tend to think that his first reaction was the right one. Samuel had a soft spot in his heart for Saul. You know that from reading the story. He did. He just felt bad for him. It was, it, he did this out of pity. And this was actually part of the reason Saul never grew the way he should as a follower of God. Saul, or Samuel rather, kept doing too much for him. When, when a king in Israel takes office, he's supposed, he's supposed to write down the entire law by hand 
when Saul became king, you know who wrote down the law? Samuel. He cheated Saul out of a Bible education. He did too much for him. I think he's overstepping here a little bit. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do like Samuel. I'm not going to stand at the door and try to weed out the tares from the wheat. I'm not going to police you in that way and say, listen, I I don't see any fruit coming from your life. You're just playing games. I know it. Everybody else knows it. You, You spiritually stink. You've gone nose deaf, but we can tell you're over the hill. We can see you heading for a very bad end. You don't see it. We can see it. I'm not going to do that. We'll let you keep coming to church. And I pray that the grace of God grips a hold of your heart and something in a sermon, something amongst the congregate just grips a hold of you and you actually do repent and you go back and make right whatever you're lacking in your life. Do you see what happened next in verse 32? Then Samuel, then said Samuel, bring ye hither me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's what that man deserved. You know who should have done it? Saul. You know who did it? Samuel. So you know what I want to do? I'll let you keep coming. But I'm going to back off a little bit and say, you take care of your Agag. You know there are some things you need to make right some steps you need to take, that's your job. And it would be wrong, I I mean well, but it would be wrong if I take care of Agag for you. It's part of your growing. This was the beginning of the end. This was the test, and Saul failed it, and he set a a low ceiling, and it's downhill. You know, I'm just going to give you the bird's eye view to close up the sermon. You know what happens in the next several chapters as as the book closes? Tell me if this sounds familiar to any of you. Saul begins to struggle mightily with jealousy, envy. He gets very depressed. He suffers from fits of rage and anger. He wastes years of his life chasing the most valiant man in all of Israel. He's enemies with the best man in Israel, David. He loses his relationship with Jonathan, his son. He can no longer get a prayer answered. And he ends up beheaded, his lifeless body hanging on the wall of the Philistines. Where did the decline start? Right there in chapter 15. It was the beginning of the end. With him in the tabernacle, quote unquote, worshiping the Lord. But it wasn't right. I hope it's not true, but it might be that today marks the beginning of your end. Because this is as good as it will ever get for you. This is as close as you will ever get. This is as much as you'll ever do for Christ. God help you. God help you not to end up like Saul. You have a chance today to genuinely go take care of that agag in your life. Let's all stand if you would please. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Caleb will play something softly. There's an altar set up. I didn't set this up. Somebody else put this out, but there's a bench here as an altar if you want to come. Saul, if you need to come, don't wait for Samuel to come hold your hand and bring you forward. 
Saul, you need to come. You need to come and say, Lord, I've sinned. I was afraid of what the people would think. And I have a lukewarm Christianity. And my heart is hard. And I've quit trying. God, starting today, as uncomfortable as it may be, I want to do what you told me to do. Even if I don't like it, I'll do it because you're right. And you know what's best. Now friend, if you've never been saved, I've preached a lot to people that, uh, that are already Christians today, but I've mentioned today about being saved. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to come in your heart and save you, Please stop assuming that the best you can do is enough to save you. That's just not true. That's why Jesus died on the cross in your place. You need a Savior. You know the real heartbreaking thing about this? I read it at the beginning of the sermon. The Lord whispered into Samuel's heart and said, Saul has not performed the commandment of the Lord and I'm going to remove him as king. Samuel knew the end had begun. Saul didn't know it. Then as I look out, I wonder how many of you are unaware that your end has begun. Why don't you take that seriously? Why does it not bother you? Why? Please, please, please. Father, I want to ask you to please help us, Lord. Start with me. Lord, I don't want to get to the top. I don't, I, I, I don't want the end to begin now. I want to keep climbing that mountain to get closer to you. Show me, Lord. Show me which agag I've left undone. Lord, I'm sorry if I've compromised, if I've held back. Lord, please put your finger on, put your finger on what I've done wrong. God, please help this church. Help us, Lord. Not to blame the people around us. Lord, help us not to be self-willed. And please help us never to just put on a show when we come to church. Father, please touch our hearts. Help us to be genuine with you. Before we leave, Lord, I just want to ask... You know the hearts of these people this morning. If someone's here not saved, God, please help that person to learn today how much they need a Savior. Save somebody's soul today. I do thank you, Father, for being so long-suffering.
I think if Saul would have repented, you would have, you would have given him a second chance. But he never did fully repent. Thank you for your patience with us. Father, please, we, we desire to hear more from you. Would you please meet with us again this evening? Bring us back safely. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.